Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with The Wretched of the Earth. We finished the very long chapter 1 and today we're starting on chapter 2, which will be shorter. We won't get through all of it today, so let's get started. Spontaneity, its strength and weakness. The consideration of violence has led us to take account of the frequent existence of a time lag, or a difference of rhythm, between the leaders of a nationalist party and the mass of the people. In every political or trade union organization, there is a traditional gap between the rank and file, who demand the total and immediate bettering of their lot, and the leaders, who, since they are aware of the difficulties which may be made by the employers, seek to limit and restrain the workers' demands. This is why you often are aware of a dogged discontentment among the rank and file as regards their leaders. After a day spent in demonstrating for their demands, the leaders celebrate the victory, whereas the rank and file have a strong suspicion that they have been cheated. It is through a multiplicity of demonstrations in support of their claims, and through an increase in trade union demands, that the rank and file achieve their political education. A politically informed trade union member is a man who knows that a local conflict is not a decisive settlement between himself and the employers. The native intellectuals, who have studied in their respective mother countries, the working political parties, carefully organize similar institutions in order to mobilize the masses and bring pressure to bear on the colonial administration. The birth of nationalist parties in the colonized countries is contemporary with the formation of an intellectual elite engaged in trade. The elite will attach a fundamental importance to organization, so much so that the fetish of organization will often take precedence over a reasoned study of a colonial society. The notion of the party is a notion imported from the mother country. This instrument of modern political warfare is thrown down just as it is, without the slightest modification upon real life with all its infinite variations and lack of balance. Where slavery, serfdom, barter, a skilled working class, and high finance exist side by side. The weakness of political parties does not only lie in the mechanical application of an organization which was created to carry on the struggle of the working class inside a highly industrialized capitalist society. If we limit ourselves to the type of organization, it is clear that innovations and adaptations ought to have been made. The great mistake, the inherent defect in the majority of political parties in underdeveloped regions, has been, following traditional lines, to approach in the first place those elements which are the most politically conscious. The working classes in the towns, the skilled workers, and the civil servants. That is to say, a tiny portion of the population which hardly represents more than 1%. But although this proletariat has read the party publications and understood its propaganda, it is much less ready to obey in the event of orders being given which set in motion the fierce struggle for national liberation. It cannot be too strongly stressed that in the colonial territories the proletariat is the nucleus of the colonized population, which has been most pampered by the colonial regime. The embryonic proletariat of the towns is in a comparatively privileged position. In capitalist countries, the working class has nothing to lose. It is they who in the long run have everything to gain. In the colonial countries, the working class has everything to lose. 
In reality, it represents that fraction of the colonized nation which is necessary and irreplaceable if the colonial machine is to run smoothly. It includes tram conductors, taxi drivers, miners, dockers, interpreters, nurses, and so on. It is these elements which constitute the most faithful followers of the nationalist parties, and who, because of the privileged place which they hold in the colonial system, constitute also the bourgeois fraction of the colonized people. So we understand that the followers of the nationalist political parties are above all town dwellers, shop stewards, industrial workers, intellectuals, and shopkeepers all living for the most part in the towns. Their way of thinking is already marked in many points by the comparatively well-to-do class, distinguished by technical advances that they spring from. Here, modern ideas reign. It is these classes that will struggle against obscurantist traditions, that will change old customs, and that will thus enter into open conflict with the old granite block upon which the nation rests. The overwhelming majority of nationalist parties show a deep distrust toward the people of the rural areas. The fact is that as a body, these people appear to them to be bogged down in fruitless inertia. The members of the nationalist parties, town workers and intellectuals, pass the same unfavorable judgment on country districts as the settlers. But if we try to understand the reasons for this mistrust on the part of the political parties with regard to the rural areas, we must remember that colonialism has often strengthened or established its domination by organizing the petrification of the country districts. Ringed round by marabous, witch doctors, and customary chieftains, the majority of country dwellers are still living in the feudal manner, and the full power of this medieval structure of society is maintained by the settlers' military and administrative officials. So now, the young nationalist middle class, which is above all a class interested in trade, is going to compete with these feudal lords in many and various fields. There are marabous and medicine men who bar the way to sick people, who otherwise could consult the doctor, oracles which pass judgment and thus render lawyers useless, cades who make use of their political and administrative powers to set up in trade or to start a transport service, customary chiefs who oppose, in the name of religion and tradition, the setting up of businesses and the introduction of new goods. The rising class of native traders and wholesalers needs the disappearance of these prohibitions and barriers in order to develop. The native customers, the preserve of feudal lords, who now become aware that they are more or less forbidden to buy the new products, therefore become a market to be contended for. The feudal leaders form a screen between the young westernized nationalists and the bulk of the people. Each time the elite tries to get through to the country people, the tribal chieftains, leaders of confraternities, and traditional authorities intensify their warnings, their threats, and their excommunications. These traditional authorities, who have been upheld by the occupying power, view with disfavor the attempts made by the elite to penetrate the country districts. They know very well that the ideas which are likely to be introduced by these influences coming from the towns, call in question the very nature of unchanging, everlasting feudalism. 
Thus, their enemy is not at all the occupying power with which they get along on the whole very well. But these people with modern ideas who mean to dislocate the aboriginal society, and who in doing so will take the bread out of their mouths. The westernized elements experience feelings with regard to the bulk of the peasantry, which are reminiscent of those found among the town workers of industrialized countries. The history of middle class and working class revolutions has shown that the bulk of the peasants often constitute a break on the revolution. Generally, in industrialized countries, the peasantry as a whole are the least aware, the worst organized, and at the same time, the most anarchical element. They show a whole range of characteristics. Individualism, lack of discipline, liking for money, and propensities toward waves of uncontrollable rage and deep discouragement, which define a line of behavior that is objectively reactionary. We have seen that the nationalist parties copy their methods from those of the Western political parties, and also, for the most part, that they do not direct their propaganda toward the rural masses. In fact, if a reasoned analysis of colonized society had been made, it would have shown them that the native peasantry lives against a background of tradition, where the traditional structure of society has remained intact, whereas in the industrialized countries, it is just this traditional setting which has been broken up by the progress of industrialization. In the colonies, it is at the very core of the embryonic working class that you find individualist behavior. The landless peasants, who make up the lumpen proletariat, leave the country districts, where vital statistics are just so many insoluble problems, rush toward the towns, crowd into tin shack settlements, and try to make their way into the ports and cities founded by colonial domination. The bulk of the country people, for their part, continue to live within a rigid framework, and the extra mouths to feed have no other alternative than to emigrate toward the centers of population. The peasant who stays put defends his traditions stubbornly, and in a colonized society stands for the disciplined element whose interests lie in maintaining the social structure. It is true that this unchanging way of life, which hangs on like grim death to rigid social structures, may occasionally give birth to movements which are based on religious fanaticism or tribal wars. But in their spontaneous movements, the country people, as a whole, remain disciplined and altruistic. The individual stands aside in favor of the community. The country people are suspicious of the townsmen. The latter dresses like European. He speaks the European's language, works with him, sometimes even lives in the same district. So he is considered by the peasants as a turncoat who has betrayed everything that goes to make up the national heritage. The townspeople are traitors and knaves who seem to get on well with the occupying powers and do their best to get on within the framework of the colonial system. This is why you often hear the country people say of town dwellers that they have no morals. Here, we are not dealing with the old antagonism between town and country. It is the antagonism which exists between the native who is excluded from the advantages of colonialism and his counterpart, who manages to turn colonial exploitation to his account. What is more, the colonialists make use of this antagonism in their struggle against the nationalist parties. They mobilize the people of the mountains and the upcountry dwellers against the townsfolk. 
They pitch the hinterland against the seaboard, they rise up the tribespeople, and we need not be surprised to see Kalanji crowned king of Kasai, just as it was not surprising to see, some years ago, the assembly of the chiefs of Ghana making Nkrumah dance to their tune. The political parties do not manage to organize the country districts. Instead of using existing structures and giving them a nationalist or progressive character, they mean to try and destroy living tradition in the colonial framework. They believe it lies in their power to give the initial impulse to the nation, whereas in reality, the chains forged by the colonial system still weigh it down heavily. They do not go out to find the mass of the people. They do not put their theoretical knowledge to the service of the people. They only try to erect a framework around the people which follows an a priori schedule. Thus, from the capital city, they will parachute organizers into the villages who are either unknown or too young and who, armed with instructions from the central authority, mean to treat the duar or village like a factory cell. The traditional chiefs are ignored, sometimes even persecuted. The makers of the future nation's history trample unconcernedly over small local disputes, that is to say, the only existing national events, whereas they ought to make of village history, the history of traditional conflicts between clans and tribes, a harmonious whole, at one with the decisive action to which they call on the people to contribute. The old men, surrounded by respect in all traditional societies, and usually invested with unquestionable moral authority, are publicly held up to ridicule. The occupying power's local authorities do not fail to use the resentment thus engendered, and keep in touch with the slightest decisions adopted by this caricature of authority. Police repression, well informed because it is based on precise information, strikes. The parachuted leaders and the consequential members of the new assembly are arrested. Such setbacks confirm the theoretical analysis of the nationalist parties. The disastrous experience of trying to enroll the country people as a whole reinforces their distrust and crystallizes their aggressiveness toward that section of the people. Even after the struggle for national freedom has succeeded, the same mistakes are made and such mistakes make for the maintenance of decentralizing and autonomous tendencies. Tribalism in the colonial phase gives way to regionalism in the national phase, and finds its expression as far as institutions are concerned in federalism. But it may happen that the country people, in spite of the slight hold that the nationalist parties have over them, play a decisive part, either in the process of the maturing of the national consciousness or through working in with the action of nationalist parties, or less frequently, by substituting themselves purely and simply for the sterility of these parties. For the propaganda of nationalist parties always finds an echo in the heart of the peasantry. The memory of the anti-colonial period is very much alive in the villages, where women still croon in their children's ears songs to which the warriors marched when they went out to fight the conquerors. At 12 or 13 years of age, the village children know the names of the old men who were in the last rising, and the dreams they dream in the duars or in the villages are not those of money or of getting through their exams like the children of the towns, but dreams of identification with some rebel or another, the story of whose heroic death still today moves them to tears. 
just when the nationalist parties are trying to organise the embryonic working class in the towns, we notice certain seemingly completely inexplicable explosions in the country districts. Take for example the famous rebellion of 1947 in Madagascar. The colonial authorities were categorical. It was a peasant rising. In fact, we now know that as usual things were much more complicated than that. During the Second World War, the big colonial companies greatly increased their power and became the possessors of all the land that up until then was still free. At the same time, there was talk of planting the island eventually with Jewish, Kabbalian, and West Indian refugees. Another rumour was equally rife, that the whites of South Africa were soon going to invade the island with the collusion of the settlers. Thus, after the war, the candidates on the nationalist list were triumphantly elected. Immediately after, organised repression began of the cells of the Mouvement Démocratique de la Rénovation Malgache, Democratic Movement for Madagascan Restoration, Colonialism, in order to reach its ends, used the usual traditional methods – frequent arrests, racist propaganda between tribes, and the creation of a party out of the unorganized elements of the lumpen proletariat. This party, along with the name of the disinherited Madagascans, gave the colonial authorities, by its distinctly provocative actions, the legal excuse to maintain order. It happened that this very frequent operation of liquidating a party, which had been set up in advance, took on in this context gigantic proportions. The rural masses, on the defensive for the last three or four years, suddenly felt themselves in deadly peril, and decided to oppose colonialist forces savagely. Armed with spears, or more often simply with sticks and stones, the people flung themselves into the general revolt for national liberty we know the end of the story. Such armed rebellions only represent one of the means used by the country dwellers to join in the national struggle. Sometimes when the nationalist party in the towns is tracked down by police repression, the peasants carry on the tradition of urban agitation. News of the repression comes to the country districts in a grossly exaggerated form. The tale runs that the leaders are arrested, that machine gunning is rife, that the town is running red with the blood of Negroes, or that the small settlers are bathing in Arab blood. Thereupon, the accumulated, exacerbated hate explodes. The neighbouring police barracks is captured. The policemen are hacked to pieces. The local schoolmaster is murdered. The doctor only gets away with his life because he was not at home, etc. Pacifying forces are hurried to the spot, and the air force bombards it. Then the banner of revolt is unfurled. The old warrior-like traditions spring up again. The women cheer. The men organize and take up positions in the mountains. And guerrilla war begins. The peasantry spontaneously gives concrete form to the general insecurity. And colonialism takes fright and either continues the war or negotiates. What is the reaction of the nationalist parties to this eruption of the peasant masses into the national struggle? We have seen that the majority of nationalist parties have not written into their agenda the necessity for armed intervention. They do not oppose the continuing of the rebellion, but they content themselves with leaving it to the spontaneous action of the country people. As a whole, they treat this new element as a sort of manna fallen from heaven, and pray to goodness that it'll go on falling. They make the most of the manna, 
but do not attempt to organize the rebellion. They don't send leaders into the countryside to educate the people politically or to increase their awareness or put the struggle onto a higher level. All they do is to hope that, carried onward by its own momentum, the action of the people will not come to a standstill. There is no contamination of the rural movement by the urban movement. Each develops according to its own dialectic. The nationalist parties do not attempt to give definitive orders to the country people, although the latter are perfectly ready to listen to them. They offer them no objective. They simply hope that this new movement will go on indefinitely and that the bombardments will not put an end to it. Thus we see that even when such an occasion offers, the nationalist parties make no use at all of the opportunity which is offered to them to integrate the people of the countryside, to educate them politically, and to raise the level of their struggle. The old attitude of mistrust toward the countryside is criminally evident. The political leaders go underground in the towns, give the impression to the colonialists that they have no connection with the rebels, or seek refuge abroad. It very seldom happens that they join the people in the hills. In Kenya, for example, during the Mau Mau Rebellion, not a single well-known nationalist declared his affiliation with the movement, or even tried to defend the men involved in it. The different strata of the nation never have it out with each other to any advantage. There is no setting of accounts between them. Thus, when independence is achieved, after the repression practiced on the country people, after the entente between colonialism and the nationalist parties, it is no wonder that you find this incomprehension to an even greater degree. The country dwellers are slow to take up the structural reforms proposed by the government, and equally slow in following their social reforms. Even though they may be very progressive if viewed objectively, precisely because the people now at the head of affairs did not explain to the people as a whole, during the colonial period, what were the aims of the party, the national trends, or the problems of international politics. The mistrust which country dwellers and those still living within the feudal system feel toward nationalist parties during the colonial period is followed by a similarly strong hostility during the national period. The colonial secret services, which were not disbanded after independence, keep up the discontentment and still manage to make serious difficulties for the young governments. All in all, the government is only being made to pay for its laziness during the period of liberation and its unfailing mistrust of the country people. The nation may well have a reasonable, if progressive, head to it. Its body will remain weak, stubborn, and non-cooperative. The temptation, therefore, will be to break up this body by centralizing the administration and surrounding the people by a firm administrative framework. This is one of the reasons why you often hear it said that in underdeveloped countries, a small dose of dictatorship is needed. The men at the head of things distrust the people of the countryside. Moreover, this distrust takes on serious proportions. This is the case, for example, of certain governments which, long after national independence is declared, continue to consider the interior of the country as a non-pacified area, where the chief of state or his ministers only go when the national army is carrying out maneuvers there. For all practical purposes, the interior ranks with the unknown. Paradoxically, the national government in its dealings with the country people as a whole is reminiscent of certain features of the former colonial power. We don't quite know how the mass of these people will react. 
is the cry, and the young ruling class does not hesitate to assert that they need the thick end of the stick if this country is to get out of the Middle Ages. But as we have seen, the offhand way in which the political parties treated the rural population during the colonial phase could only prejudice national unity at the very moment when the young nation needs to get off to a good start. Sometimes colonialism attempts to dislocate or create diversions around the upward thrust of nationalism. Instead of organizing the sheiks and chiefs against the revolutionaries in the towns, native committees organized the tribes and confraternities into parties. Confronted with the urban party, which was beginning to embody the national will, and to constitute a danger for the colonial regime, splinter groups are born, and tendencies and parties which have their origin in ethnic or regional differences spring up. It is the entire tribe which is turning itself into a political party, closely advised by the colonialists. The conference table can now be pulled out. The party, which advocates unity, will be drowned in the computations of the various splinter groups, while the tribal parties will oppose centralization and unity, and will denounce the party of unity as a dictatorship. Later on, the same tactics will be used by the national opposition, the occupying power has made its choice from among the two or three nationalist parties which led the struggle for liberation. The ways of choosing are well known. When a party has achieved national unanimity and has imposed itself on the occupying power as the sole spokesman of the nation, the colonial power starts complicated maneuverings and delays the opening of negotiations as much as ever it can. Such a delay will be used to fritter away the demands of this party, or get its leaders to put certain extremist elements into the background. If, on the other hand, no party really succeeds in imposing itself, the occupying power is content to extend privileges to the party which it considers to be the most reasonable. The nationalist parties, which have not taken part in the negotiations, engage in denunciations of the agreement reached between the other party and the occupying power. The party which takes over the reins from the colonialists, conscious of the danger with which the extremely demagogical and confused attitude of the rival party threatens it, tries to disband its competitor and to condemn it to illegality. The persecuted party has no alternative but to seek refuge in the outskirts of the towns and in the country districts. It tries to rouse the people of the country against the traitors of the seaboard and the corrupt politicians of the capital. Any excuse is good enough. Religious feeling, innovations made by the new government which break from tradition, and so on. The obscurantist tendencies of the country dwellers are exploited to the full. The so-called revolutionary doctrine in fact rests on the retrograde, emotional, and spontaneous nature of the country districts. Here and there it is whispered that the mountain is moving, that the countryside is discontented. It's said that in a certain place, the police have opened fire on the peasantry, that reinforcements have been sent out, and that the government is on the point of falling. The parties in opposition, since they have no clear program, have no other end in view but to take the place of the governing party, and with this as their goal, they place their destiny in the hands of the obscure, spontaneous mass of the peasantry. Inversely, it sometimes happens that the opposition no longer relies for support on the country people, 
but rather on the progressive elements found in the trade unions of the young nation. In this case, the government calls upon the country folk to oppose the demands of the workers, which they denounce as the maneuvers of anti-traditionalist adventurers. The facts we've established regarding the political parties are once more observed, mutatis mutandis, on the level of the trade unions. In the beginning, the trade union organizations in colonial territories are regularly local branches of the trade unions of the mother country, and their orders are the echo of those given in the mother country. Once the decisive phase of the struggle for liberation emerges, some native trade unionists will decide upon the creation of national unions. The old structure, imported from the mother country, will suffer heavy losses as the native members desert it. The creating of new unions is a fresh element of pressure in the hands of the populations of the towns upon colonialism. We have seen that the working class in the colonies is in an embryonic state and represents that fraction of the people which is the most favoured. The national unions are born out of the struggle for independence organised in the towns, and their programme is above all a political programme and a nationalist programme. Such a national union which comes into being during the decisive phase of the fight for independence is in fact the legal enlistment of conscious, dynamic, nationalist elements. The mass of the country dwellers, looked down upon by the political parties, continue to be kept at a distance. Of course there will be an agricultural workers union there, but its creation is simply to supply an answer to the categorical necessity to present a united front to colonialism. The trade union officials who have won their colours in the field of the union organisations of the mother country have no idea how to organise the mass of the country people. They have lost all contact with the peasantry and their primary preoccupation is to enlist dockers, metallurgists, and state-employed gas and electricity workers in their ranks. During the colonial phase, the nationalist trade union organisations constitute an impressive striking power. In the towns, the trade unionists can bring to a standstill, or at any rate slow down at any given moment, the colonialist economy. Since the European settlement is often confined to the towns, the psychological effects of demonstrations on that settlement are considerable. There is no electricity, no gas, the dustbins are left emptied, and goods not on the quays. These little islands of the mother country, which the towns constitute in the colonial structure, are deeply conscious of trade union action. The fortress of colonialism, which the capital represents, staggers under their blows. But the interior, the mass of country dwellers, knows nothing of this conflict. Thus we see that there is a lack of proportion from the national point of view between the importance of the trade unions and the rest of the nation. After independence, the workers who have joined the unions get the impression that they are living in a vacuum. The limited objective that they set themselves turns out to be, at the very moment that it is attained, extremely precarious, having regard to the immensity of the task of national reconstruction. When faced with a national middle class whose connections with the government are often closely linked, the trade union leaders discover that they can no longer limit themselves to working class agitation. Isolated by their very nature from the country people, and incapable of giving directions once outside the suburbs, the unions become more and more political in their attitude. In fact, 
the unions become candidates for governmental power. They try by every means to corner the middle classes. They protest against the maintenance of foreign bases on the national territory, they denounce trade agreements, and they oppose the national government's foreign policy. The workers, now that they have their independence, do not know where to go from there. For the day after independence is declared, the trade unions realize that if their social demands were to be expressed, they would scandalize the rest of the nation. For the workers are in fact the most favored section of the population, and represent the most comfortably off fraction of the people. Any movement starting off to fight for the bettering of living conditions for the dockers and workmen would not only be very unpopular, but would also run the risk of provoking the hostility of the disinherited rural population. The trade unions, to whom all trade union activity is forbidden, merely mark time. And that's going to do it for this week. Next week we'll be continuing this chapter. If you have comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about books, movies, video games, and anime. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>